Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the audio cast of the Salisbury Pediatric Newsletter. This is issue number 28, volume 11, and we are going to discuss all things social media and teenagers, and I hope uh, you find some of this information really useful if you have teenagers or young tweens on their way. As always, I am your host, Dr. M, and I hope you enjoy this week's audio cast. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional, and it is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. Let's move on. Okay, so this week, we are going to get into some of the data around social media, specifically as it relates to texting and some unfortunately difficult and sad stories that have occurred to people who have young kids. The world is changing rapidly, technology is changing even more rapidly, and our young children, teenagers, are learning to adapt to this technology faster than we are learning how to control that adaptation and make it safe and make it in a way where their health mentally and physically is guarded um, without stifling their ability to learn and innovate their social existence. There's a quote under free thoughts I thought I'd share. Be an authoritative parent and not a permissive parent, lest your child fall prey to the social media machine that is trying to consume every last second of their day. This is a real important dissent, you know, differentiation point between a permissive style where you let your child learn, love, and grow in the framework of all of the external environmental forces without guidance or control, whereas the authoritative parent is still loving their child while being involved in controlling some of the things that may be more dangerous to their ability to socially exist without risk of major dysfunction. So teenagers need our guidance, and they always will, despite what they clearly disagree with or tell us they don't. Um, So for us, we need to stay involved in order to truly love them and guide them. So do we know what our teenagers are texting? This is a big question. So as our teenagers learn and attempt to navigate the modern world that is replete with every time-consuming social media application device that exists, we must stay involved and tied to them for their own safety. Dr. Laura Berman has a cautionary tale that discusses the hidden dangers of children using social media to communicate their desire to use and obtain drugs. Uh, She stated in a post that I found, quote, instead of writing out words and structured sentences, teenagers and young adults are using emojis to express thoughts and emotions in conversations with their friends and online strangers. So it's important that parents become educated on the language our kids are speaking. This is a really important point, and her story is sort of a sad one. Um, You can go Google her story online, but her child, unfortunately, um, was using drugs and had a negative outcome causing uh, him to lose his life. So I'll let you read that online if you want to learn more about it. But the bottom line, the same is there's a lot happening here that we need to be involved in. The world of teenagers is a really scary place for a parent to navigate as teens and children have applications, you know, what we call social media uh, applications that 
disappear written text and pictures in seconds to minutes, hiding an obvious trail of trouble if there is one that exists, that they are existing with. Teenagers have been able to communicate in sneaky ways for a long, long time. Yet these days, these transmission capabilities seem more tricky as everyone has a smartphone linked to everyone else and societal pressures to be a certain way are as high as ever. And the pressures for us as parents to be involved in this is, seems to me to be higher than ever. You know, you look at the, the usage of these applications, like let's say, let's take Snapchat, Instagram, and TikTok, for example, these message transfer devices. You know, 88% of teenagers using one of those three, you know, applications that comes from Statista data. Snapchat only allows the viewer to post a picture for a few seconds before it's deleted, quote unquote. You know, but this clearly leads to inherent risky behavior as there is a belief from the user that what is sent neither is copyable or saved anywhere. And both of those are not true. These platforms allow teens to be less afraid of bullying posts also as they are fleeting after being sent. And this brings up a whole other realm of danger uh, when it comes to teens communicating with each other when bullying is so easy to, to commit when you're not face-to-face -face with somebody and, and, and all of the things that are related to personal interactions. Teens can use emojis now to communicate, and this is the case uh, of Dr. Berman where, you know, they can communicate with a drug dealer or other teens about drugs, sex, or any other inappropriate behavior, and parents are left scratching their heads in confusion as to what's going on despite the fact that they may be aware that their child is acting strange or different. But, you know, you can't be aware of the communication if you don't understand the communication methods. And this may put you in a situation where you find that your issue is out of your control because you don't even know what's happening. You know, we have to remember that these social media apps are not inherently bad so much as they're there for use that, you know, if somebody wants to use them in the wrong way, can do bad things. So, you know, most teens are using them to communicate and have fun, and this is a good thing. You know, but there is risk. And, and as with anything, you know, we have to be very aware of this so we don't, you know, turn a blind eye and then end up with a situation that is very negative to our children. If you ever watched the movie Social Dilemma that I talked about a few months ago, then you understand that the deck is also stacked against us as parents, especially if you're a permissive parent, because the algorithms, the computer algorithms that are running these social media platforms you know, are, are really geared against the child's health, in my mind, based on what I've seen and understand. Therefore, we're stuck as parents left with few obvious tools to aid in this process of helping them navigate modern society and grow up safely as teenagers. So I wrote out a list of 10 things that I think could be useful to parents in this social media teenage conundrum. Number one, be involved and keep them involved. Busy kids are less likely to engage in drug use and self-destructive behavior on the media. And this just flat out is true. Um, number two, let it be known that their smartphone is on your account and is accessible to you at the moment's notice. Therefore, don't post or type anything that your grandmother would be truly offended by. I think that's a pretty reasonable statement. Sort of like that old statement Michael Pollan had, I think he said once that, you know, don't eat anything your grandmother wouldn't recognize. You know, there's a lot to be said about old school reality, you know, in the context of new school technology. Number three, make sure that they are aware that nothing truly leaves the internet despite the disappearing act that occurs. 
Number four, make sure that your children are in bed at a reasonable hour without a television in the room and not up on social media deep into the night. Keep smartphones in the kitchen safe zone for their benefit. This is just such a simple, simple ask and works great. If you find your kids are stealing the phone from the kitchen at night, then you keep it in your bedroom. You just keep upping the game until they're able to comply with whatever your rules are. Number five. Have conversations in a loving and honest way about the risks of current life, cancel culture, internet trolls, biased opinions, and all the garbage that has pushed everyone's way on a daily basis. They need to understand the truth about the negativity in modern society with respect to social media. Number six, have conversations about FOMO, or what's otherwise known as fear of missing out. You will not be invited to every event and frankly should not go as life is more than constant social events. You know, this is something teens need to understand. There are plenty of events that are going to happen in life for the, till the dawn of time. And they are going to go to some and not to others. But to be always stressed out because you're seeing stuff on social media that you weren't able to come, weren't able to go to or for that matter invited to just doesn't serve you in the long run. So have those conversations. Number seven. Realize that teens often lie about their age to gain access to inappropriate websites. This coupled to giving name and age online can make for a real target, you know, for an online predator who's looking for a vulnerable person. Profiles can reveal the birthday, age, likes, friends, and other compromising information that they'll use uh, against the child. Encourage them to forgo putting personal information out there for anyone to see. Uh, unless it's just their really socially tight group, you know, and even then may not be the best idea. Encourage them to keep their social media circles super tight um, as larger circles are avenues to more predatory behavior and bullies. Number eight, turn off location tracking on all social media apps. This is a big deal. It gives unwanted people access to your location. They could potentially show up and, and do things nefariously um, to where your child is at. So, that, that, you know, from as, my, as far as I'm concerned, nobody needs to know where you are at at any time other than, you know, maybe your parents if they really need to know that. Number nine, use the privacy and safety settings that are, that are enabled um, or enableable for the social media and phone apps. This could be very, very useful in helping promote safety and help keep people who are otherwise trying to pry on where your child is out of their view. Number 10, tell your kids to never friend a stranger online. That just makes uh, complete simple sense. The bottom line is we just need to be involved, involved in every single way. I could tell you that in my house, my wife is phenomenal at keeping a close eye on our children's activities, teaching them, giving them constant verbal educations without coming down like an ogre or you know a hovercraft parent. Because that's the big thing is you want to have a balance point between letting your kids grow and learn as well as protecting them from the danger. So I think that's the key piece of finding that balance. They need to explore they need to live, they need to experience, they need to have social interactions. If it's on social media is the best way versus in person, you know, that's something we have to learn to deal with. But we need to be involved and aware and, and you know, learning as time goes on s certainly plays into our safety profile. You know, like this earlier statement, you know, emojis for drug transfer, you know, is something we need to be aware of. So that's sort of the end of that discussion. I think it's pretty straightforward, um, you know, authoritative parenting style, be involved, love your kids, uh, listen to them, but also teach them day to day. All right, moving on. Section two, why in God's name are we subsidizing obesity as a government? And by definition, us, the people who elect the government, this is just a question I've asked myself for the better part of 20 years. I've been frustrated by this annual reality for the better part of a long time, um, 20 years, 30 years, something like that. How can we continue to allow our elected officials to 
promote certain farmers, certain convenience stores, and the healthcare industry to profit from making our children ill. I mean, this is seriously what's happening. The scourge of this country is and remains the constant access of our children to government-funded, low-quality foods in the school system and also at SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, to help feed children. We have seen exponential rise in obesity, liver fat disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, and other diseases of overnutrition, while no changes of meaningful value have occurred in the quality and or access to good food for the poorest children in America. This is just unconscionable. From an opinion article, doctors Landrigan, Satlin, and Buffetta write, quote, high fructose corn syrup was invented in the 1960s. Production increased dramatically in the 1970s after the U.S. Department of Agriculture ended controls on corn, wheat, and soy production and replaced them instead with a policy that encouraged and paid, most importantly, and paid farmers to grow as much of these commodity crops as possible. Today, these subsidies total $19 billion with a B dollars a year. They have led to enormous increases in production of cheap corn starch and high fructose corn syrup. No subsidies are paid to fruit or vegetable farmers, despite the clear health benefits of eating fresh fruits and vegetables, end quote. Initial reasons behind the subsidizing or subsidization of these staple and storable foods were obvious in the 1960s and 70s, where food scarcity was more common and more of a concern. The financial incentives have been misaligned since this time, with the issue of food scarcity has become a non-issue in American agrosphere over the past 40 years. Children are no longer missing out on meals or going calorically hungry. The opposite actually exists in full force throughout the American ecosystem, especially in rural and inner city environments. Go- quote, governments spend $570 billion with a B annually on public support for agricultural producers. These subsidies are forced or excuse me, are focused on achieving historical developmental imperatives such as eliminating hunger and reducing poverty, rather than at incentivizing the behaviors that will achieve today's broader vision for food systems, end quote. That's from McKinsey Company in 2020. Therefore, the obvious answer to this problem is to stop subsidizing the wrong foods and in turn subsidize the high quality fresh fruits and vegetables. It seems like an absolute no-brainer until it gets into politics. Unfortunately, we are not only subsidizing the wrong foods, we're also allowing the purchase of these poor quality products with SNAP dollars for the poorest Americans. Quote, about 20 cents of every SNAP dollar goes towards sweetened beverages, dessert, salty snacks, candy, and sugar, according to a report commissioned by the USDA. Soft drinks, potato chips, and processed meats are among the top 10 items purchased with SNAP benefits. End quote. Raman et al. 2021. So therefore, in the pursuit of good quote, feed the less fortunate, end quote, governmental policies, year after year, different lawmakers double down on knowingly doing the opposite through subsidies and poorly placed policy. In the world of pediatrics, we are stuck picking up the pieces of this real-time nightmare with governmental incentives to fight the obesity and metabolic disease epidemic through testing, identification, and education. Now we are living in a perverse world of antecedent government-endorsed damage to the human body with no effective tools to help these kids while being told to do exactly that. We will check hemoglobin A1Cs, lipid levels, liver screenings, tests, and all these different metabolic analyses to know that these kids are sick, which we already know just by basic metrics. But we have no simple answers to this problem because the general health success that we are looking for is stacked against us at governmental policy levels. And that leaves these kids in a mess, frankly. And this is the fundamental problem that we have right now. So 
you know, I've never heard anyone ask the simple question, you know, at the political level, you know, why don't we have clean air, clean food and clean water as a top shelf problem for our politicians? You know, this would make the most sense, you know, keep us healthy. Therefore, we're more likely able to work, study, learn and societally grow as best we can. You know, I think this should be, you know, the, the top issue on every political campaign moving forward. But alas, we tend to be more interested in social problems than we are in the real problems of human health. Okay, section three is a quick one. Chemicals in women's care products may be affecting hormone physiology. Quote, the peer-reviewed study published in Environmental Science Technology detected that uh, the study's authors characterized as high levels of organic fluorine, an indicator of PFAS, in over 231 makeup and personal care products. That includes lipstick, eyeliner, mascara, foundation, concealer, lip balm, blush, nail polish, and more. The products that most frequently contain high levels of fluorine include waterproof mascara, 82% of brands tested, foundation, 63%, and liquid lipstick, 62%. This comes from Perkins et al., uh, 2021. I've been tracking these issues for years. Read the article, you can get it on the newsletter, uh, on the Doxmo website or at the Salisbury Pediatrics website. And then get ready for the two upcoming podcasts that I'm about to have with Dr. Randy Jurd on the field of epigenetics. And then a discussion with Ken Cook, the president of the Environmental Working Group and Dr. John Ware, professor and executive director of the Center for the Environment at Catawba College in North Carolina. We're gonna have a really far ranging conversation to look into these issues and why you know, societally, we're struggling. These podcasts are going to lay the framework for further understanding the world of chemicals and disease. And we're going to try and answer the questions. How are chemicals affecting us as humans, mothers, and children? What should we do to protect ourselves? And that's, you know, some some critical data points I think everyone can use moving forward. Um, also, if you go to the website, uh, SalisburyPediatrics.com, uh, uh, com, or Docsmo.com, there's an are a, a um, recipe for gut healing turkey bromboth um, by Nicole Magritte, RD. I hope you guys enjoy it. As always, I hope you enjoyed this quick audio cast of Salisbury Pediatric Newsletter, Volume 11, Issue Number 28. As always, I'm Dr. M. Hope you guys have a fabulous day and remember to hug those kids. <laughs>